This week on Crossing Crown Radio, idolatry, that treasonous rebellion that plagues unregenerate man in his culture-making efforts, is pernicious and ubiquitous. We'll consider the doctrine of idolatry and take a look at the various idols that are plaguing us today, including the biggest one that continues to throw its ugly weight around. Also, our three headlines include U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel stated in Tampa, Florida, that the CDC has failed to adequately explain its reasons for mandating masks on public transportation and airplanes and ruled against the mandate. The fallout has been, of course, interesting. Plus, the South China Morning Post reports that Shanghai's most recent lockdown efforts is sucking the life out of everyone. But who could have possibly predicted that outcome? We'll discuss. And Elon Musk, who has been the center of controversy lately with his attempted personal acquisition of Twitter, is back in the news for his comments related to Netflix and wokeness. We'll take a look at what offensive thing he said this time. As always, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. Thank you for watching and listening to Crossing Crown Radio. In his first volume of pro-reggae, Abraham Kuyper writes, quote, The dethronement of the ruler of this world and the glorious unfolding of Jesus' kingship over the world are what encompass and drive sacred history. Hang on to that quote for just a minute as we are going to come back to it. If I were to ask you, what are the idols most prevalent today, what would you say? Money? Greed? Sex? Perhaps you think the idol of self is most destructive? Maybe it's actually the idol of power or the allure of popularity. Either way, we need to do a bit more digging before naming the idols. In his book, Here Are Your Gods, Christopher J.H. Wright explains the paradox involved in discovering what the gods even are. On the one hand, when it comes to living in the reality of the true God's world, idols and false gods are actually nothing. They are ultimately powerless. Man simply ascribes to some idol that which belongs to the triune God. On the other hand, humans are the ones who make the gods with our own hands. Are they demons? Are they mystical machinations? Wright explains, quote, Human beings did not need the devil to teach us idolatry. Once we chose to reject the authority of the living God, we ended up creating gods for ourselves, either within the created order or within our imaginations of our hearts. We are experts in doing so, and the devil fosters our expertise. What I love about this quote uh, from Wright is that he highlights the same thing the Amsterdam philosophy highlights, namely, the centrality of the heart as the ultimate ground of human action. In the Christian world and life view, man finds the ultimate foundation for all of his thinking and predication and doing and his being to be God and his law word as revealed to us in the Holy Scripture, the Bible being that ideology and ism that penetrates the deepest parts of our being, functioning as the final authority which sharpens our convictions and fabricates for us our commitments. 
That foundational expression itself, which is actually faith, springs from the heart, and no one, not even the unbeliever, can escape this reality. Consider what uh, Wright further explains. If these gods are human constructs, then guess what? They are ours to deal with. We sowed, and now we must reap. If we can create them, then we can, of course, certainly destroy them. And this brings me to something else Wright said, and it dovetails into what Kuiper had written long before. And this is from Wright here. History is the graveyard of the gods. Now, remember what Kuiper had said earlier about history. The dethronement of the ruler of this world and the glorious unfolding of Jesus' kingship over the world are what encompass and drive sacred history. History itself is the dethronement of Satan, sin, and death, which constitutes the building of graveyards for human idolatry. And in that historical process, we find the lordship and kingship of Christ being expanded and growing. And according to Kuiper, that very reality is what drives, quote, sacred history. But what is it that drives human idolatry? Right again, says, quote, At the root, then, is human rejection of the godness of God and the finality of God's moral authority, end quote. And where does this human rejection come from? Well, hearts that have been poisoned by the lust for human autonomy. When Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to determine good and evil on their own terms, that's Genesis 3, 5, they corrupted their ethical standing before God, incurring judicial death as a result. At this moment in time, mankind, apart from the grace of God, would be marked by the worship and service of the creation rather than the creator. Creation was to be utilized and stewarded in our worship and service of God, but instead creation would be utilized and stewarded in the worship of ourselves. We, in our sins, wanted to liberate ourselves from God in order to serve our own deistic delusions. So how do we identify those idols? First, we need to realize that the idols stem from the heart. What Wright says in passing and what Deweyverd believed was vital to understanding human ontology and our being. Second, once we realize the true nature of idolatry as stemming from the hearts of men, we can identify from there those things that shape the contours of human action and human feeling. That is, the heart expresses itself in the various modal aspects of creation which are based on certain assumptions, presuppositions, about reality. It may be helpful to identify those modal aspects again developed by Duiverd and his brother-in-law, Vallenhoven. They are the following, the mathematical or the quantitative, the spatial or the extension, uh, the kenigmatic, the, the, the change that we undergo, the flux that goes on in the world. Uh, we have the physical or the energetic aspect. We have the biotic or what some call the organic. There's the perceptive, uh, the sensitive aspect to reality. There's the analytical or the logical aspect. Uh, we have the formative or the historical aspect. Uh, there is the lingual aspect of creation, where communication happens. Uh, the social, of course, with human beings in society. The economic, the aesthetic, which is harmony and beauty. The juridical, which pertains to justice. Of course, there's the ethical as well, which is, pertains to righteousness. 
And we have finally the pistic, or having to do with faith. Now, all of those aspects we swim in on a day-to-day basis, experiencing the fullness of life here on earth as creatures interacting with the created order. As I mentioned, the heart, which is the center of being for man, expresses itself in a certain disposition, involving itself in thinking and doing in these various aspects. The problem is the heart's orientation will either be towards God and his law authority, or the heart will be bent towards autonomy. And this depends on what man presupposes about himself, about God, and about the world. Thus, depending on the heart's particular inclination, the man or woman, or child for that matter, will engage these modal aspects in either a God-honoring way or a God-rebelling way. Now, as an aside, Christian philosophy that understands these aspects to the created order do not elevate any one particular mode or aspect um, over against the other, meaning all of them work together and none of them ought to control and or absorb the others. Uh, Karl Marx is a great example. He made the economic aspect to reality the supreme reality, subsuming the others. Um, Pythagoras absolutized the first aspect, the numerical, because everything is number, according to him. Of course, Kant absolutized the ethical-moral aspect, sawing off the branch he was sitting on, and so on. To bring us back to the identification of the idols, we conclude that these things are, one, human constructs, that are two, rooted in the heart, and based on presuppositions, which eventually, three, find themselves in some tangible expression of the created order. The interaction of man and the world is, according to Paul in Romans 1, the relationship of creator and creation, the distinction that Van Til found to be most important and helpful and important in philosophy and theology. So how do we name the gods? Well, Wright suggests the following. What are the things that entice us? As subjects interacting with objects in the created order, what fascinates us, enticing us into either speculation or wrongful glorification? Splendor, glory, majesty, ineffableness, strength, grandeur, sumptuousness, magnificence, dignity, prestige, and honor are all the things that we use to describe the true and living God. If those things find their termination on some created thing, then we have found an idol. Another question as we try to locate the idol, what are those things that we fear? What terrifies us or makes us anxious and unnerved? Are those things leveraged in such a way as to dislodge you from the worship and service of the Creator who is blessed forever? Wright proposes yet another way to name the gods. What are those things that we trust? Oftentimes we look to something or someone to deliver us from the things that we fear, and and that thing would naturally be said to be the very thing we trust in. What is your ultimate in life? What is the guiding principle you choose to abide by? The thing about trusting idols is that we end up giving more and more trust to them as a form of obeisance. Idols, we have to remember, idols can only take. They can never give. And that is because the human heart can only worship. It can never receive it. 
If we're enticed by something, it may be because we fear something else. If we fear something else, we tend to put our trust in some sort of deliverance mechanism. When we put our trust in a deliverer, we're doing so because we perceive that we need something. And that's Wright's final category. What do we need? We have all things necessary for life and doctrine, for salvation and living. What else do we need? If, if it isn't Christ and his glorious gospel, chances are it's an idol. We all know that idols are destructive. They harm the image of God placed in and on us, and they try to, at least, take the place of the glory that belongs to God alone. They end up failing us in the end, and we are left helpless and frustrated at best, suicidal and self-destructive at worst. In the end, though, sin makes us as hollow as the idols we choose to follow. So, what of our current culture? As stated already, we could say that the most foundational problem we face as a culture is the human heart and, as Calvin suggests, its tendency to produce idols off of its assembly line. This is why the proclamation of the gospel is so necessary. Only the gospel can rip out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Only the gospel can resurrect the dead man to new life in the here and now. Only the gospel can topple the idols, conquer the heart, and reestablish man's presuppositions and motives. In our world today, we are plagued with idols. Isaiah 2.8 is a sober principle for us. Quote, their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. End quote. When we presume upon the, the grace of God and the blessings of his covenant, daring to suggest that our strength and might and power has done it, God turns those blessings into cursings. The Western world, despite all of its past sin, and they are many, has received from the hand of God a tremendous amount of blessing. The Dominion Covenant, with all of its advancements in productivity, economics, technology, and so on, has now become, in our newly fashioned technocracy, a noose we have fashioned by our own rebellious volition. Isaiah 10.11 asks, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Change out Jerusalem and put America in its place. As an aside, here's an experiment for you. Go to read.lsbible.org and search for the word idol. Take note which section of Scripture populates the most word usages. Who in Scripture uses the words idol more than anyone else? Well, the hint is it's the major prophets. And what did the prophets do? They preached against the idolatry. Not only have we presumed upon the, the riches of God's grace, we have elevated ourselves with a haughty spirit. The odd thing about today's culture is the fact that we have a cauldron of ingredients in this soup, and we just keep adding to it. The rationalism of the Enlightenment didn't work, so we chose a dash of modernism. Modernism didn't work, so we chose postmodernism as our next ingredient, highlighting our need for relativism and free expression. Except postmodernism isn't working either because we caught we caught ourselves in the gears of the age-old nature-freedom dialectic, held captive by certain fixed realities in the created order, yet wanting to be free from those realities. So as a result, the soup has gone rancid. Mankind always wants the autonomy, for that is what drives men to sin. This is why we have seen what we have seen in the abortion holocaust. 
If only the mother will see her ultrasound, then she won't murder her child. That has now become, well, I know it's a baby. I know that its gender and sex is imputed from on high, but I do not care. The child must die. This is exactly what Ezekiel warned against in Ezekiel 16.20. Quote, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? End quote. Fornication bred children, which gave way to abortion, and God hates it. Name the idols. They are ubiquitous. Autonomy is driving this train. Selfishness driven by lust, sexual deviancy, the idol of power, control, the love of money, all of it is idolatry. It is the worship of the creature instead of the creator. But what is the greatest idol before us? What would you say is our greatest idol? I believe that the greatest idol today is statism. Erected over centuries, this idol is the Goliath of Goliaths. Statism is the belief that equal ultimacy belongs to not to the Trinity, but to the civil government. Because of our idols, we have turned over that which God gave us as a matter of self-government. We didn't want self-governance under the Lordship of Christ, the fruit of His Holy Spirit working in us. Instead, we wanted to farm out that freedom in exchange for civil protection. And we all know how that is going after two years of COVID insanity. The idol of statism has gone by many names. Cain, who took capital punishment into his own hands. The Tower of Babel. We also have the Baals and the Asheroths. We have Moloch and so on. Today we find that the state has reached itself into everything. Education, money, property, all of it. There's really not an aspect of life that hasn't been encroached upon by the civil sphere. This ubiquity of overreach is an attempt at transcendence. It's a cry for immutability. It's a desire for omnipresence and omniscience. Statism is a claim to deity. Now remember the Kuiper quote, the dethronement of the ruler of this world and the glorious unfolding of Jesus' kingship over the world are what encompass and drive sacred history. Note the word encompass. If Christ will not be Lord of this nation, then the state will always attempt to be Lord. And if the church of Jesus Christ goes along with it, failing to warn, like the prophets, of the idolatries and the idolatrous gross aspirations to deity, then what drives sacred history will be humanism and the savageness of man. One needn't look any further than the history of communism to see just how bad it can get. So, friends, the idols must go in the trash can, and we are the ones that must go there first. The idols of our day will not go away quietly, which means we have a lot of work to do. But that's why you exist, right? This is why the church exists, to proclaim the kingship of Christ over all the world in order to drive history into further and further sanctification for the blessing of the nations and the glory of the triune God. And we say amen. And now for our three headlines. Well, all right. First up, we have this report from CNBC and... The headline says, TSA will not enforce COVID mask mandate on planes, public transit after court ruling, White House says. 
Now, a lot of outlets are, of course, reporting on this, and that's because they are all sort of panicked about it. Maybe not everybody's panicked. It seems like everybody's panicked. But some of the key points, and this is uh, developing, because as of this recording, I do know that the CDC is looking to appeal to the DOJ to try and get this squashed, because they still think that these types of things should be mandated. But uh, from CNBC, there's some key points here in the article. The, the key points are this. One, a federal judge in Florida on Monday ruled that the CDC has overstepped its authority when it issued a mass mandate for planes and other forms of public transportation. That's putting it lightly. I, 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 we've been arguing that since day one. You don't have the authority to do this. Um, so we're, we're way past that. <laughs> we've been in this for two years. Um, the CDC mandate is no longer in effect, and the TSA will not enforce it at this time. That is what a Biden administration official said. Of course, we know that that's being challenged. Even uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki was saying as much. But the White House is reviewing, this is from the article, the White House is reviewing the court's ruling, and the Justice Department will decide whether it will appeal, according to Jen Psaki. So as of uh, this recording, that looks like that appeal process is, is getting getting going. The court's ruling comes less than a week after the CDC extended the mandate for 15 days. Remember, two weeks. <laughs> Just two weeks. That's, that's all you need. Uh, it's amazing what they think. And of course, this is amid a rise in, quote, COVID infections nationwide due to the more contagious Omicron BA2 subvariant. So the TSA is already saying they're not going to enforce the COVID-19 mask mandate anymore. Uh, probably you've already seen videos of people cheering and clapping on the airlines. Uh, they're, they're excited. Everybody's excited. And who wouldn't be? Because this has been a tremendous uh, mess, to say the least. Um, now, the CDC is recommending that people do it, but I guess it's not a mandate because of this judge ruling uh, from Judge uh, Mizell in Tampa. Uh, she was actually appointed, the article mentions this, she was appointed by uh, President Donald Trump in 2020. Um, the article goes on, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki at a news conference Monday said the administration is reviewing the court's ruling and the Justice Department will determine whether it will appeal. So ultimately is the DOJ that has to decide what they're going to do with that. The Association of Flight Attendants, the nation's largest union of cabin crews, has recently taken a neutral position on the mask rule because its members are divided about the issue. <laughs> yeah, no neutrality, but you're trying because everybody's got their own opinions on it. Um, and, and fancy, it's the ones who are wearing the mask, it seems like, are the most threatened by it. It's, it's like uh, you walk into a store or something and, uh, you know, I've been at the store for two years, never worn a mask, not one time. And you can see, especially early on, people were very leery, like, oh, he doesn't have a mask, as if I'm extra contagious or something like that. Uh, but that's kind of where we're at. The mask, everybody knows it doesn't work. We've known that for many, many years. Studies in the 90s and early 2000s have proven that it doesn't really stop any sort of viral transmission. Um it's, it's theater. We know it's a prop. We know that it's like a pacifier for people. And that's what it's become. Um, but this idea that this mask that you're wearing and somebody enters into the room and they're not wearing a mask and somehow you're at risk. Well, I, doesn't your mask work? Um, that's the logic, of course, the things we're dealing with. 
Um, but Sarah Nelson, she's a union leader for that association of flight attendants. She said, quote, the last thing we need for workers on the front lines or passengers traveling today is confusion and chaos. <laughs> Isn't that what we've seen for two years? Confusion and chaos. Fauci says you don't need the mask. Then he says you need the mask. And then he says it's your choice. Well, we need to bring the mask back. In fact, you need to maybe wear more than one. Interestingly enough, um, the article points out that it takes airlines 24 to 48 hours to put new procedures in place and tell employees about them. I mean, just, you know, send a tweet. Everybody will see it. You don't have to wait that long. Um, but passengers are supposed to uh, up, you know, check with airlines about travel requirements. And it is interesting because I also found, and this is from the Daily Wire, that uh, major U.S. airlines are revealing if they're going to continue to enforce Biden's mask mandates. And they're all saying they're they're optional now. So I don't know how you're going to, you know, put all those worms back in the can once this thing is open uh, with the, after this ruling. American Airlines is already saying that they're not enforcing it. Um, United Airlines is saying the same thing. Delta is saying the same thing with Delta. It says, effective immediately, masks are optional for all airport employees, crew members, and customers inside U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Delta employees and customers may continue wearing masks if they so choose. Wearing a well-fitting mask protects the wearer, even if others around them are not wearing masks. So now the narrative shift a little bit, because uh, this is, talk about madness and chaos. Now, now the narrative is, well, if you need protection, it will protect you, even if somebody else isn't wearing one. Wasn't that the point that many of us were arguing for for so long that this is an option? If, and if you want to wear it, fine, go ahead. But you don't have the authority to make me wear it. And don't try to pretend that it's like loving my neighbor as myself. I'm treating people the way I want to be treated. I remember we were in Nashville for an event, a health freedom event in late 2020, and uh, we were walking through the mall, my family and I, unmasked. There was only a very few that were unmasked at that point. And we went into a uh, one of the arcade um, places. The name it totally escapes me. Um, but uh, Dave & Buster's, that's it. Dave & Buster's. And we're walking around and the gentleman says, hey, you can't, you can't really be in here without a mask. And and he was friendly and we joked and had a, had a laugh. But I said, look, man, I'm just, I was told that I wanted to, that I'm supposed to be the change I want to see in the world. <laughs> so he laughed hysterically. And I said, look, I know you're trying to just do your job and you don't want the hassle. So we're going to go. But, um, you know, this is uh, stupid. <laughs> um, Southwest Airlines is doing the same thing. Uh, Alaska Airlines, JetBlue, Spirit Airlines, Frontier Airlines. Uh, Frontier says to mask or not to mask, the choice is yours. Well, welcome to what we've been saying for two years. Masks are now optional on domestic flights. However, certain airports, yada, yada, that is an ongoing issue. So we're going to see what happens if the DOJ appeals this, um, what sort of uh, process that's going to go. Uh, as of this recording, we don't, we don't have an answer to that. So I'm not really sure what is going, what is going to happen. All right, next up, this is from South China Morning Post. And the headline reads, with no end to Shanghai's COVID lockdown in sight, anger among residents is at risk of boiling over. So Shanghai, 
one of the key central places in China, certainly their financial hub, that's they've implemented this, quote, clunky lockdown that has fueled outrage. Well, that's because all of this has been arbitrary. Um, no precedent to work with. We're just sort of figuring out as we go. And it, there's been a weeping and gnashing of teeth along the way. But what is the reality on the ground, the article says? Does the online sentiment match the reality in Shanghai? So the article says a deep sense of unease has descended on Shanghai, China's largest city and the economic and cultural capital, amid a surging COVID-19 outbreak that has brought the metropolis to his knee to its knees. Now, that's a little bit uh, excessive, I would say, brought it to its knees. Well, maybe it's bringing it to its, to its knees because your response is atrocious. Stuck in a citywide lockdown that started on March 28th with no end in sight, the emotions coming out of Shanghai have fluctuated between anger, frustration, reluctant resolve, and small moments of joy. So they're locking people in their homes. The only people who are allowed out are the people who are gathering food, as you can see in the picture, to distribute to people. Um, people are hungry. People are starving. There, there's all sorts of chaotic stuff happening. They're hauling people off to quarantine camps. Uh, the testing is out of control. This is like, <laughs> it's mind-numbing and baffling how we have responded to a disease that has such a high percentage of survival rates. I mean, I'm with, I'm with Dr. Peter McCullough on this. If you didn't see his uh, program when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, he's been frustrated too. Um, no doubt, people have died. It's, it's something that is, I mean... I. I believe people are getting sick. Like, I'm not denying that. But we've had so many uh, malfeasance, all this uh, sort of like government-controlled propaganda. You have the technocracy issues. You have all this like perfect storm coming together. And you've been doing it for two years, finally loosening up here in the U.S. And now you're going to go back to it when it didn't really work in the, the first time. The, McCullough's argument is basically very simple. Why are we waiting till people are so sick they have to go to the hospital? And then they get remdesivir, which shuts down your kidneys. And then, and then you die, right? You, you, you end up with uh, going septic, and then they put you on morphine. Oh, he stopped eating. Well, he's dead, or she's dead. And that's happening all the time. With a protocol that doesn't work from the NIH, you have guys like McCullough who's, who are very well published, even though we would disagree on some things. He's, I respect the man tremendously, though. He's got uh, an incredible wealth of knowledge. And his argument was, hey, why aren't we treating people at home? Why are we just you know, doing this um, sort of last-minute thing? And, but he can't get anywhere with anybody. Fauci ignores him. Uh, the NIH, Collins is ignoring him. They're all ignoring what guys like this are saying. And it's really, really frustrating and I don't think we're ever going to see the end of that. But back to Shanghai. The anxieties have been fueled by images of pandemic prevention workers killing dogs, hungry residents looting grocery stores and drones flying over skyscrapers, telling residents to con control your soul's desire for freedom. <laughs> Isn't that funny coming from a communist nation? You may have a desire for freedom and that, uh, you might get itchy about it, but you have to control it. You have to suppress that. You need to put that back in its little box and just remember we're trying to save lives. Yeah, no. The, the article continues, Amid the viral moments is the reality that many people still support China's dynamic COVID zero policy. 
They often argue that China's healthcare infrastructure would crumble under an outbreak of the scale endured in the U.S., which has seen 88.4 million cases and uh, 986,000 deaths since the pandemic began in March 2020. You know, the data, the data, the data, the data. Uh, one quote, torture the data long enough, it'll con- you can get it to confess anything. <laughs> Go figure. So Shanghai is on lockdown. Um, President Xi Jinping said prevention and control work cannot be relaxed. And he was on a trip to the southern island province of Henan, uh, indicating that Shanghai had a long road ahead for any return to sense of normalcy. You know, the, the testing has gotten, gotten out of control. They are doing so many tests. You wonder why cases are up. You, you got tests like the PCR test that is identifying exosome secretions, what we call viruses, which are natural and all over, the pervasive. I mean, they're in, it's in the body. But you're, you're testing like crazy and you wonder why you're getting cases. You're testing people who are fine. They don't have any symptoms. And then they test positive. Oh, you need to go stay home. It's amazing. This has been one of the most inept things I've ever witnessed in my life. And I've seen, I've seen quite a few in my near 40 years of life. It's, it's incredible. Um, there's all sorts of economic ramifications for China. Um, I don't have time to go into all of this, but people are frustrated and there are people who are sick and tired of being told to keep your desire for freedom in check. What a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. This is why when you talk about theonomy or autonomy, um, that segment's going to move. Instead of being a separate segment, it's just going to be interspersed. Here's a good example of theonomy or autonomy. This is why we wrote the Warrington Declaration. There is no control of the government over the lives of people in their health. Because the people who, like Ed Stetzer and the Gospel coalition people who want to just throw themselves and fawn over Francis Collins and, you know, make sure you listen to that episode I did with, with uh, Jordan, they, they're, they're fawning over these people. And what they don't realize is what they are doing. They are giving government more and more power over these things. So the, the all you got to do is call a call a health emergency, shut everybody down, make people's bank accounts suffer, take away the most important thing they have, which is God-given self-governance to labor for the kingdom and carry out the dominion covenant. Take that away, you've ruined a man. And that's what we've done. So Shanghai, I don't know what's going to end up happening there. The the Tesla plant there I know is is on lockdown. Uh, there's all sorts of economic things are going to end up happening. And uh, you can't you can't do this forever. You just can't do this forever. People are going to get sick. People die. 10 out of 10 people die annually. <laughs> it just happens. So to pretend that you're going to stop that, prevent that, uh, you're just not. You're not God, for one, so stop trying to be God. Man, I hope we've learned our lesson from this. I don't think we have. I'm hoping churches have learned this, pastors have learned from this. I'm not sure that we have, but boy, do we really, really need to. All right, finally, moving on, our third headline. This is from Fox Business. Elon Musk rips Netflix for woke mind virus, making it unwatchable as shares nosedive. You've probably been paying attention and seeing that uh, Netflix have lo- has lost millions of subscribers 
Uh, of course, they're saying, well, you know, the pandemic's been tough on people. They're trying to save money. And they did just raise their prices again recently. And uh, Elon Musk get, goes to Twitter, uh, the, the company he really wants to own. And sounds like he's working on another angle for that. But he responded to a tweet from Slash Dot. And uh, this tweet was on April 19th. It said, Netflix shares crater 20% after company reports it loses, it lost subs subscribers for the first time in more than 10 years. News, news headlines are funny to me, the way we write them. So 20% loss for the first time in more than 10 years. And, uh, oh, it's economic reasons. Or, you know, there's just growing, there's competition in the marketplace and, you know, that this sort of thing happens. And Elon Musk goes and says what everybody's thinking in his tweet here. You can read it for yourself. The woke mind virus is making Netflix unwatchable. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. Uh, promoting movies about men who can get pregnant, that sort of thing. It's, it's incredible. And they wonder why people are frustrated and they wonder why Maybe they don't really want to deal with this sort of nonsense. Um, I will say this sort of as a, a related topic that uh, Lure.tv, L-O-O-R.tv is uh, in beta and launched and I was able to get some early access and see some of the content. The idea is that we fund what we want to see. And so I think you guys should check that out. If you want a, uh, an invite, I have some. You can... Uh, shoot me a message and write us on Cross Crown Radio on Facebook or or what have you. Um, but this is interesting. This whole uh, the, the the woke mind virus. Um, a lot of people sort of put wokeness into simply the critical race theory discussion, uh, and there are things you know. I think sometimes it gets overblown, um, and there are some concerns though. The everybody's you know everybody's racist, and that's just a white thing that's going to be with us forever, and. You know, that's nonsense. But a lot of the woke stuff, too, has to do with human sexuality. Who can get pregnant? Who can't get pregnant? Who can get ba have babies? When do we assign the gender as if it's ours to assign? Um, that woke mind virus in Musk's language is definitely making certain things unwatchable. Um, and you may have followed sort of a bonus headline. I just read it this morning. Uh, that in Florida, the Senate is working and passed on a, a bill that would basically take away Disney's right to self-governance in a lot of ways. They had a lot of perks being a huge generator of money in Florida. Uh, but it sounds like even DeSantis is going to sign that. And that'll be interesting to see what takes place there with all of this nonsense. Disney saying that it wants to uh, add more diversity, which diversity is fine. If by, by diversity, you simply mean reflection of skin tone and ethnicities. I thought they were already doing that. But uh, if if by um, making your company more diverse, you also mean we need um, a, a lesbian princess story. Well, yeah, that's not going to happen. Or you may do it. They probably will. But at the end of the day, it's not going to go well. So that's it for this week. Be sure to check out our podcast feed as we are releasing audio-only interviews and discussions periodically, so don't miss them. But that's it for us this week. Thanks for watching and listening to Cross and Crown Radio. We'll see you next time. The Lord bless you and keep you.